Welcome to Revenge of the Drive-In, the podcast where Jim and Patrick discuss a drive-in double feature randomly selected from a list of over 1,600 movies. Now, what is a drive-in film? Well, we're defining it as something that might be just below the mainstream, something from a genre that doesn't get the respect it deserves. These could be cult movies, midnight movies, jawas, slasher movies, black exploitation flicks, erotic thrillers, etc. Or these might just be movies that evoke the youthful spirit of drive-in cinema of the 1950s and 1960s. I'm your host, Patrick, and I'm joined by... Jim! In this episode, we're going to be discussing two movies, Godzilla from 1954, the original, as well as Picasso Trigger from director Andy Sedaris. Definitely liked one movie more than the other. And before we get any further, just like to point out Godzilla is available on HBO Max and Picasso Trigger is on Tubi. So that's Tubi.tv, which is a great resource for schlock films of the action and horror variety. And they, they have some bigger stuff too. But if you're looking to watch a movie like Picasso Trigger, The, the, the Demolitionist, Hard Ticket to Hawaii, Tubi's the way to go. Without much further ado... Uh, to start with Godzilla, this is a movie that both needs no introduction and very, very much needs an introduction because mm-hmm. Godzilla is sort of the reputation of Godzilla is kind of informed from the series as a well, whole, from all the sequels, from all the reboots and everything. The original Godzilla is very different from what Godzilla was in the 70s, in the 90s, etc. But this movie from 1954 from director Ishiro Honda, who directed Godzilla at its height and at some of its lows, because he would return and direct many sequels. Uh, This is a very serious movie. Uh, It's a Cold War movie, absolutely. It's, Mm -hmm. um, It's about the dangers of thermonuclear weapons, about the H bomb, which was being tested in the Pacific at the time from the United States, from the Soviet Union, and I believe even from France. I think France was testing it out there, too. I uh, I actually looked into this because I was concerned. Well, not, not concerned. I was, uh, whatever the word is, I looked into it. In 1954, it was either 54 or 52. It was just before this movie came out. Is this about that fishing boat? Yeah, exactly, yeah. Yeah, March of 54. Oh, Okay. But before that, the uh, the Americans had been testing various atomic bombs in the various atolls all around the south of Japan. And they were having their radiation blow up towards Japan. The, I guess, ocean winds and or currents when it landed in the ocean, when it landed in the ocean. And uh, at certain points, like I think it's mentioned at one point in the movie, they said, first we can't eat fish and now and now we have Godzilla or something like that. And uh, That's actually a reference to something... F- from Soviet Union testing because they tested something, you know, north somewhere north of Japan in the Pacific there, uh. and the, um, the radiation, I don't think infected is the right word, but you know what I mean, it got to one of the remote Japanese islands, and those people weren't able to eat vegetables or drink the water there because it was um, contaminated. So there were, um, this was a very... This is a movie very much of its time, but it's also one that I think holds up pretty well in a Mm -hmm. lot of ways. Just uh, last episode with It, The Terror from Beyond Space, we talked about a monster movie that was really good except for the monster. (laughs) This is a, a, a monster movie that's really good, and even though, you know, the monster costume and everything has its flaws, they knew how to shoot this monster. You know what I mean? Yeah. But anyways, we'll get into all of that, of course. 
But uh, this is a movie that we, of course, watch the Japanese version with subtitles. Mm-hmm. But this is a movie that I kind of grew. I kind of grew up with Godzilla in a way, and then for years I kind of never thought of him, and then I kind of rediscovered Godzilla movies. And there's a lot of different reasons to enjoy Godzilla movies, and there isn't really another movie in the original series of Godzilla that has the same kind of tone as this. So this really is unique, even amongst the series. Unlike you, the Godzilla movie that I grew up with, for the most part, was the Roland Emmerich Godzilla. Oh yeah, I'm, uh, I'm very familiar it. with that one. I, I watched that one a lot as a kid, and I liked it as a kid, but I do not enjoy it now. <laughs> yeah, I think I'd definitely take 54 Godzilla over 98. Absolutely. So anyways, this, this movie was a huge hit in Japan. In 1954, this was a huge year for Japanese film and for Toho, the studio that released this movie, because in the same year, Toho also released Seven Samurai, the Akira Kurosawa movie, which is considered by many to be the greatest movie of all time, or at the very least among the greatest movies of all time. And uh, there was another big, there was another Samurai movie too that came out the same year that was also huge, and all three of those movies were released by Toho. They were all three of them like the most expensive Japanese movies ever up to that point, and I think they each broke each other's records in terms of how much money they made as well. Wow. So, and also Ishiro Honda, the director of this movie, was apparently very good friends with Akira Kurosawa, and Akira Kurosawa is a fan of this movie. Anyways... Uh, so the first thing that we see in this movie is this little title card that says made with the support of the Japan Coast Guard, which is just kind of, mm-hmm. okay. <laughs> Usually that's like at the end of a movie, but here it's at the beginning. And then we hear this stomping, the classic Godzilla roar, and then during the credits, the kick-ass theme music plays. Oh, it's great. I think this this Godzilla theme is super underrated, in my opinion. It shows up throughout the series. They just brought it back for the most recent Godzilla movie because I don't think it was in the 2014 American Godzilla, but it was in Godzilla King of the Monsters. And uh, it's really great. I, I want all American Godzilla movies to use this. It's great. It's wonderful. It's composed by Akira Ifukube. I'm not going uh, to yes. get these names right. Apologies, but... I know that composer uh, well. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, I mean, this is a Toho movie. He probably did. He probably composed for Kurosawa movies, but maybe mm-hmm. not. After the credits, there's a huge explosion at sea, which sinks a ship. It catches fire, and we see people kind of reacting to the light, which is a really neat shot. And then this is our first introduction to the miniatures of the movie, which are a little hit or miss. I think generally speaking, the miniatures for the buildings and the cityscapes, all that stuff's pretty darn good. It's the miniatures for the vehicles that just really aren't good. I would almost say that just the land vehicles, because I think the ships look fine. Yeah, and even I, I mean, think... they're, they're just toys, but... <laughs> yeah, and, and even I think the tanks look all right, because they're mostly shot from, like, the, the treads up and in shadow. Yeah, it's it's just the cars look like garbage, but yeah. the cars and the trucks. <laughs> but anyways, a rescue ship, a salvage ship, goes out to see what was the matter with that one, and then they go down, and it's, it's just the cycle that leaves the press, you know, wondering what the hell's going on at sea. 
this kind of opening was greatly inspired by the event you alluded to in 1954, where there was a Japanese fishing boat that wandered a little too close to an American H-bomb testing site, and everyone made it back okay, but they ended up dying of radiation poisoning. Even surrounding islands, they had like nuclear fallout, which had kind of like burned up in the atmosphere or something. I'm not entirely sure how it works, but apparently it looked like it was snowing on these islands. So you had all these kids on these like Pacific islands playing in this in this radioactive fallout. Thousands of people died <laughs> throughout the Pacific. All right, well, crazy. glad to hear you laughing about it. Well, <laughs> it's just it's just such a bizarre thing. So one fisherman, Masaji or Masaji, washes ashore at Odo Island. Odo is a fictional island. It's supposed to be very remote, and you know its economy is completely based on fishing. And they're a little different. They're a little kind of traditional. But he washes ashore, and everybody's trying to figure out, okay, what the hell happened? And there's like a village elder who's you know the superstitious guy that's like, oh, it's Godzilla. And Godzilla is apparently some kind of sea monster of Odo Island legend. So then at Odo Island, a bunch of journalists show up and they're trying to figure out what's going on. A storm comes in at night and then so does Godzilla. And this scene is really neat because we don't see Godzilla. It's just this constant, you know, storm sound of heavy rain. And then these buildings start to fall apart. Mm -hmm. It's a mix of miniatures for the exterior but then actual elaborate sets for the interiors which is really neat and then so one teenager shinkichi goes outside while the storm is raging and while buildings are falling apart and he goes up to a hill and he sees something and he screams but we don't see it yet and this is this is monster movie 101 right you don't want to reveal anything too early Mm -hmm. so then there's like this briefing which I think it's the government. It might be a little bit of press in there, but I think it's mainly the government about, okay, what's happening? Shinkichi shares, you know, what he had seen there. They bring in this paleontologist named Yamani, and he's a a fun character. There's there's like four central characters here, Mm -hmm. and all the male ones are pretty well developed, I'll say. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Yamani's (laughs) daughter is the other one who's a big, who's a big deal. Her name is, her name is Amiko, and... I guess, actually, she's fairly well-developed, too, towards the end. But anyways, Yamani is talking, and he thinks that they need to send some kind of team to go investigate what's going on at Odo Island. He goes with, he kind of leads the team there, and the team consists of his daughter, Emiko, her boyfriend, Ogata, Mm -hmm. uh, who is also, coincidentally, part of, like, some kind of ship salvaging business or something. Because we were introduced to him and Emiko before we even met Yamani because he's responding to some call about a ship having sunk. Yeah, Anyways, they head down the there. Navy or something. He's going to be, I think he's Coast Guard. Oh, maybe that's it. Maybe yeah, that's I, think, it. I think that's what it is. But anyways, they head down to Odo Island and they're in this ditch and Yamani is using a Geiger counter and finds that it's highly radioactive. He also mentions that, by the way, this is a footprint, this giant thing that you're in. And he also finds a trilobite, not a trilobite fossil, but a trilobite, which is Mm -hmm. a species that was extinct millions of years ago. And then in broad daylight, Godzilla appears. We, you know, we hear the stomping, we hear the the footsteps before he's arrived and everyone's kind of running to get a glimpse. He appears above a hill, just looking down at them. And then everyone starts running the opposite way because they're terrified, of course. 
it's a solid first appearance for the for the big fella. You know, it's uh, it's not the effects aren't great, but 1954. I mean, just look at like even though King Kong was two decades before this, like it's difficult to have in the same shot a miniature and a real thing when the miniature is supposed to be much bigger you know that's difficult that was difficult for Willis O'Brien and all the people making King Kong it's difficult still Mm -hmm. here in 1954 and this is the first Japanese movie to feature as elaborate miniatures as this one this is the first one to have like this monster you know giant rubber costume kind of thing you know what they nail in this scene they absolutely nail it it's the sound of the footsteps and then the oh absolutely absolutely and it's terrifying. Although, it's honestly terrifying. Although, I think maybe it's later in the movie. You hear the footsteps, and then you see Godzilla, and the footsteps are still happening, and he's not moving. So it's like <laughs> a little... I think that's a different scene. It might be this one, though. But yeah, the roar is fantastic. I mean, that is just a classic sound. And that was accomplished by rubbing some kind of glove against some kind of stringed instrument. I think like a double bass. And yeah, maybe like, like a glove it... with some kind of substance on it or something. Because it sounds almost metallic. You know, and that's and that's the thing that gives you almost chills. Oh, I didn't like it, but I'd like that. Oh line. no, it's wonderful. <laughs> so, anyways, uh, Yamani's team ends up back at the. I want to say mainland, but it's all islands in Japan. So, um, and they have that other another kind of briefing, and Yamani releases uh, shows off his photographs of the monster, which look like drawings. It doesn't look like the Godzilla <laughs> that we actually see, but that's fine. And he's like, okay, this thing is prehistoric. It's likely lived in underwater caves for millennia, you know, millions of years, and H-bomb testing has driven it from its home. Mm-hmm. And he, he's obviously really intent to study this thing. And then there's this big debate. This is actually, this is a really good scene overall because it's mostly exposition, but it's also, it also sets up kind of some conflicts of like what a government actually would be doing in, in a situation like this, in this kind of crisis. Because there's some people that are like, okay, we can't leak any of this to the press. Like, we don't know what to do, so we can't let the press know anything. But then there's this one woman in the crowd that's very impassioned, saying like, no, the press needs to know, the public needs to know about this. Like, you can't hide something this big. So the government asks Yamani if there's a way to kill Godzilla, and he really doesn't think there is. And he thinks, he says something like, our efforts are best spent on figuring out how to survive Godzilla because we're not going to be able to kill this thing. And he also makes the point that the H-bomb testing, as you mentioned, has kind of like awoken Godzilla, but he's just absorbed all that radiation yeah, which that's he right. found in the footprint. And he said, you know, if yeah. the radiation from an H-bomb didn't kill him, then what mm-hmm. will? So we have right, to yeah. learn to live with him or outlive him anyways. And this kind of sets up a couple of things that are really in the background. They're not central to the plot of this movie, but I thought they were incredibly relevant today. There's like these crisis centers and stuff like that. And there's just kind of, it's like a couple lines of dialogue. It's again, it's not forefront to the story, but there's like fishermen who's who've had the, the government has said like, you can't take your ships out. So you're, you're grounded. And mm-hmm. The fishermen are like talking to people and I was like, well, what the hell are we supposed to do? Like you shut down our business. We're going to starve. We're going to die. And I mean, like, this is so lockdown, you know, 2020. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, and the thing I like about it is it's almost, even though it's a monster movie, it's like so grounded in reality. Like how the public and the government actually act if a monster like this came ashore. And that was something that was praised heavily about Shin Godzilla, which to date is the most recent Japanese Godzilla movie came out in 2016. 
because that movie is all about it barely has characters it's all about like the government and scientists trying to figure out how to deal with this monster and this movie actually had more in common with that than i realized certainly more than any of the other godzilla movies so and then here's when we meet our fourth main character Although we have seen him before, and his name is Sarazawa, Dr. Sarazawa. He is my favorite human character in the entire Godzilla series. He's technically sort of in the most recent American Godzillas because uh, Ken Watanabe's character Mm -hmm. shares his name, but it's a different character. It's not really the same guy. They just took the name as kind of like a tribute or anything. But anyway, Sarazawa... He's a cool dude. He's this um, mysterious scientist. He's got an eye patch, which when I first saw that, it's like, I was thinking like, oh no, they're just trying to do like a mad scientist thing and give him an eye patch (laughs) to make it be creepy. But I actually really liked it when they, there was one line saying that he lost his eye in the war, which was again, something that really grounds this movie Mm -hmm. because uh, this movie, I mean, it's a Cold War movie. It's a post-World War II movie, but it's just kind of like, you know, in this, in, in Japan, in the years after World War II, this country was obviously involved in a total war. And you would just have, I'm sure you would just have people that were just missing limbs and missing eyes and stuff like that. And it would be just part of day-to-day life. And so I like that. At first, when I saw him, I'm like, oh no, that's they're just trying to make him like a creepy mad scientist. But no, he's, even though he's kind of a mad scientist, he's actually the most logical character in the movie in a way, but he's just this guy. Yeah, he's a guy who has a conscience really he's one of the only characters who who has like a conscience that is not only looking out for themselves but also for the whole of humanity he's almost an antagonist for a while in the story mm-hmm. I, I, he kind of is an antagonist but he has his reasons and they make perfect sense in my opinion but anyways we meet him because emiko has some kind of relationship with him she describes him as like a brother emiko of course being yamani's daughter slash ogata's uh girlfriend but she brings a journalist to talk with sarazawa i think thinking that he might have some might know something about killing godzilla or dealing with godzilla in some way sarazawa is really secretive he doesn't reveal anything to the journalist and he basically tells him to fuck off and but and but after the journalist has left he shows emiko what he's been working on mm-hmm. although we don't quite see it but anyways he takes her into his and this is kind of a mad scientist layer a bit but he takes her down there and there's this fish tank with i don't know about a dozen fish in it and he drops like a little drop of like liquid in there and then she screams but we don't see why she screams and then there's a cut and then he says something like now you know why Nobody can know anything about this, and you can't tell anyone. You have to promise to keep this secret, which she agrees to do because they are close friends. Yeah. And then sometime after this is when we get our first true Godzilla attack, where he shows up in Tokyo Bay, and the military attacks him, and obviously we know... We, we know how this goes. The military can't do shit against him. To me, uh, anyways, this is the scene that always stuck out to me as a kid. When he destroys a train, he just kind of steps on it. And again, this is pretty good model work. It's a it's obviously a decent costume. It's a little cheesy in a way. But again, Ishiro Honda knows how to shoot this thing. There, the... There's a lot of really low angles with Godzilla, which just make him seem so huge and empowering and imposing. Yeah. They're also... 
did kind of a trick with the sets because they wanted to get those low angles and still get kind of the buildings in them so they would build the sets in the miniatures above ground and have the camera kind of at ground level like looking up at everything which is pretty cool one other thing that they did really well was i'm not sure if they did this but it looks like they did it whenever godzilla comes out of the water it looks like they've kind of slowed the footage down a bit yes that's a huge thing because that's one of the worst mistakes you can make with a miniature with any kind of miniature that or any kind of thing that you're trying to convey as being bigger than it actually is is just shoot it at normal speed yeah because that's not how size works in in yeah so when gets out when godzilla comes out of the water the water dripping from him is in slow motion and it looks great and it's convincing yeah and it's always at night he's coming out of the water at night with with a shimmer or like a sheen on the water it just looks great the only scene where we see him at day is his first scene or or the first scene where we see him yeah which is probably when he looks worse although that's not so much i don't think that's so much because it's the light but it's because they're projecting him onto a scene where i i don't know it's do you know that term what that special effect is called i don't know but i would call it like layering or something like that yeah that kind of i mean when godzilla is in a 100 percent miniature scene he looks great so during this scene of carnage in tokyo ogata yamani emiko and kinkichi who i guess is just living with them now I mean, I guess his home's been destroyed. (laughs) They kind of adopt him. (laughs) His parents might be dead too. We don't know. But anyways, they all kind of run and they're trying to see the monster. And Yamani's trying to get through the military barricade. And he's like, yo, um, Professor Yamani, they need to hear from me. But then the military dude's like, "Ah, I can't leave my post. But he's trying to tell them, like, stop shining lights on it. It's only going to make it more angry. Mm Mm-hmm. But anyways, they end up going atop a hill and watching the destruction unfold. And at this point, Yomani's, he believes that they shouldn't try to kill it, but that's also informed by his belief that they can't kill it. And later on, he becomes very upset with other characters when they're like, oh yeah, we need to kill it, whether it's Ogata or Kinkichi even has a line. Mm-hmm. And But I do think this is this is one of the rare movies where you know, because that's like kind of a cliche, like some character insists like, oh, no, we can't kill this thing. We have to study it. I mean, it's in every alien movie. <laughs> yeah. You know, right? I mean, that's it's Michael Fassbender's like out here making more aliens and stuff and like everyone else is trying to kill him. Uh, but like, I mean, that's that's a cliche. But here it's actually justified because it's informed by his belief that it can't be killed. It's not driven by any kind of wants to make a profit or out of it or anything yeah well and i guess because he's also a paleontologist and he's like you know this is this is a living dinosaur we should study this well thing. i mean that's but that's definitely part of it and and i think he kind of stresses that but at the same time i think i don't know if i'm a paleontologist i would still want a dinosaur dead if it's murdering people <laughs> you know yeah yeah i agree anyways <laughs> so godzilla just kind of leaves and then there's a government plan for an evacuation of a particular area because they're building an electric barrier, which is it's just all telephone on the coast, poles. isn't it? Yeah, 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 yeah. But it's um, and there was actually uh, a couple things worth noting about this scene is that one, uh, some of the shots of the military moving in like trucks and jeeps and stuff was actual military. I don't know if uh, Ishiro Honda just kind of shot it guerrilla style or if he had approval, but they were doing some kind of drill, and he's like, well, shit, let's use this. Oh, wow. And then the other thing is that 
Uh, obviously, when we see the electric barrier with Godzilla, it's all miniatures. But when they're putting the barrier up, it's actually animated. And there's one scene, and I think it's the one with the actual military moving, where you can tell because the image, it's, it's like a static, or it's not a static image, but the camera is like locked down. But they kind of animate these telephone poles on but they're ever so slightly moving because i think the camera's not quite locked down i don't know if you caught that no i didn't but that's really interesting yeah at this point yamani emphasizes that they should be studying godzilla's resistance to radiation and he becomes disgusted with ogata and uh, who wants it killed and he kicks him out of his house so godzilla (laughs) like that scene (laughs) yeah no it's good Godzilla shows up at the barrier, of course. He just kind of plows through it. They obviously flip the switch, and they're trying to electrocute him, but nothing. It's not working. And this is the first time we see him breathe his atomic breath. You know, since it's black and white, it's just smoke, basically. But in most of the color films, it's going to be like a blue. But this is this is their first reveal of that, and it's pretty great. And this, this scene, this scene goes on forever, because he, this is just total destruction. It's so wonderful. Yeah, it's just like a montage of, of destruction. Yeah, and, I uh, mean, part part of the appeal of Godzilla movies is it's fun to see things be destroyed. Mm-hmm. It's definitely part of it. And that's <laughs> that's why even in some of the weak sequels, there's still moments to, moments of fun to be had. And it's not like even though everything's a miniature, they're still exploding stuff and everything. I mean, it's still impressive, a lot of it. Yeah, and I also really liked the shots in this scene where um, after like Tokyo's burning... And the, these fire trucks come racing out. <laughs> yeah. And these fire trucks are just peeling around the corner all over the place. I'm like, this is so cool. Mm-hmm. And then, then what does he do? He puts his foot down in front of one and flips it, and all the firefighters get killed. That was also really neat. I mean, was that a miniature, or was that also animated? Yeah. Well, another great thing about the scene is because this is this is the destruction montage, if you will, just so much shit being blown up and being crushed. But they do a really good job of. It's not all just miniatures. They they mix in real people and they mix in real sets here and there. Mm-hmm. Like there's a scene with like people in like a some kind of boardroom or something, and they're like, "Oh shoot, we gotta leave!" And like right after they leave the room, the room just collapses. Like, okay, that's cool. And there's uh, a, a scene where people are out on like a maybe like a balcony or like a porch or something and then the building falls on them and i'm pretty sure that's the same effect that they were using when godzilla made his first appearance where they're kind of being projected onto this miniature because i think the entire set's a miniature at that point but i'm not sure because it's done really well and this is also, in regardless of just the effects of mixing in real with the special effects, it does a good job of just mixing human characters in there. Like, there's that poor woman who's, mm-hmm. like, huddled with her three kids. She's like, oh, you know, we're going to die. We're going we're gonna to be with daddy soon. Yeah, I and know. it's just, like, <laughs> so sad. Yeah. But anyways, this, this scene is complete annihilation, basically. And it kind of climaxes with there's a big giant you know radio broadcast tower where people are live broadcasting the destruction and Godzilla approaches it and the the dude who's on the radio is like okay we don't know if we're gonna make it but we're we're gonna keep going as long as we can and then obviously Godzilla (laughs) just obviously Godzilla just throws it down and it's great I also uh, forgot to mention that when he first breathes his atomic breath he does it on some of the telephone poles and the electric mm-hmm. barrier. Mm-hmm. And it's a fantastic effect. Those 
those poles just melt away. It's so yeah. cool. And then yeah. that was just accomplished. They were just wax miniatures that they just oh. blew hot air at. It's a really simple effect, but it looks fantastic. Do you know how they did the, what is it, like a satellite tower? Or, or sorry, radio tower? Do you know how they built that? Because when Godzilla attacks it, it just kind of crumples when he bites it. And I really thought that was really cool. Oh, yeah, I'm not sure. But anyways, this is the scene of the movie here, this entire fantastic disaster scene, and it's great. And the movie's tone shifts after this. I mean, it was already a serious movie, but af- like in the aftermath of this, you just see injured people and dead people being carried around. You see like orphaned children all over mm-hmm. hospitals. It's just like really sad, and it feels so real, and this very much feels like it's being informed by what happened in Japan in 1945, you know what I mean? Yeah. One of my absolute favorite scenes in this movie, because it's done so well, is the jet fight between the Jets and Godzilla. Mm -hmm. It looks so cool. Like, it's visually stunning when they have... Oh yeah, they come at him when he's in when he's in the water, and he yeah. he's kind of I get the impression he's walking away from the city anyways, but the jets attack him, yeah, and they drive him off, and people think it's a victory, but I mean I mean like he's already kind of walking away, yeah, exactly, wading through the bay. Oh, I one of my favorite moments is when he just flips the bridge over. Oh, it's great, yeah. <laughs> it's it's so cool he's just he's just like bam <laughs> he just like picks it up and he's like Ugh. <laughs> yeah no it's great it's but, great uh, also i don't know if you noticed but like that's one jet... of the best looking miniatures by the way that bridge there's also another bridge that he walks over and as soon as he steps on it you can see it collapse under him and i thought oh, oh that's yeah. a really nice touch yeah and we should point out too that a lot of the I mean, I don't know how much attention to detail in terms of, like, the actual cityscape of Tokyo went into the miniatures, but I know at least some, because that one building that has the bell tower that kind of distracts them when the bell's ringing, that's a real building. According to whenever the hell that IMDb trivia thing was written, it was still standing, so... So there's probably other things that are, like, real buildings, too, that he's taken down. Oh, in fact, they, one of the buildings, I think it might have been the one that kind of looked like the Royal Albert Hall that he that he just, like, stepped on. But that's mm-hmm. that's a Toho cinema. And apparently oh. when this movie was being shown, people were watching it, watching it there, and they freaked out when they saw that. <laughs> <laughs> but anyways, following Godzilla's exit, we get somber music playing as we see the leveled city and the injured and dead bodies being carried away. Emiko is with Ogata in a makeshift hospital, I guess, right? You know, she's, like, comforting a child whose mother is missing or dead. And she says, like, oh, I'm sure you'll see your mother soon, which I'm not sure if that's supposed to be what you say if the mother is actually dead. No, I think that's uh, it's a little I rough, don't know. you know? It's, uh, I mean, <laughs> there's such a thing as too much bedside manner. But then again, Emiko, <laughs> she's not a doctor. She's not a nurse. We don't even know what she is. She's just like, does she, she might work for her father because, I mean, she teams up with him on that expedition to Odo Island, but so does Ogata, and he's, he doesn't work for his dad, so, or her dad. I don't know. I was just say, to be honest, I just thought her character was lady, lady number one, pretty much. Yeah, you know? a little bit, but, th- but this is her big scene here. Mm-hmm. Of the four main characters, she's the most thinly written. But I like this scene for her because this is when she talks to Ogata and is like, okay, remember that day I went and saw Sarazawa? He swore me never to tell anybody, but this is what happened. And we get a flashback to that scene and we actually see what happened with the fish tank when he dumped in that little drop, that little particle. All the fish just died. Like there's just skeletons left. Yeah. Yeah, they disintegrated. 
And he says, like, you know, this is what this one drop will do. If I use this entire thing, all of Tokyo Bay would, all of life in Tokyo Bay would be killed. And he's like, okay, this is why you can't tell anyone. He's like, it's going to be used as a weapon. You know, I, I, I'm not revealing this to anybody until I know how to use it to do humanity good. Which I don't know if you are going to yeah, you know, find a way, buddy. <laughs> no, because he also I'm, says, like, it's as powerful as a nuke. I really like the scene, and the only semi-goofy thing about this whole scene is the name of the weapon, and it's the Oxygen Destroyer. Oh, the Oxygen Destroyer, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I I, I like it. It's it's classic 50s sci-fi. Oh, exactly, yeah. I mean, it's better than, like, there's, Star Trek has the Doomsday Machine. This is better (laughs) than that. (laughs) Yeah, you're right, it's better than that. But yeah, anyways, so once Ogata hears about this, he takes Emiko and they immediately go to Sarazawa. And Ogata's like, okay, tell me about the Oxygen Destroyer. And he's like, I don't know what you're talking about. And then he's like, oh, Jig is up. Emiko told me. And then he gets really pissed at Emiko. Like, he actually expected her to keep that secret. I mean, yeah, whatever. Ogata tries to, like, steal the plans for it or something, steal the research for it, and they get in a fight, and then things calm down, and Sarazawa ex- explains in detail why he can't do this, and he's like, even if we were to use this to kill Godzilla, and even if I, I were to burn my records, all my notes, as long as I'm alive, they can still coerce me into making a weapon for them, mm-hmm. which is really good. And then on the television, there's this heart-wrenching scene of just like a church just absolutely filled with school children singing and they're singing this emotional heart-wrenching song asking for prayers and asking for pity and asking for the rest of the world to help them and while this is going on Sarazawa finally relents and he's like okay I guess we do this but and then he immediately starts burning his notes So all the main characters are on a ship in Tokyo Bay where they think Godzilla is because, of course, Yamani, who's there, says that he lives in the underwater caves. And the plan is Sarazawa insists that he be the only one to go underwater to release the oxygen destroyer. He says it has to be released underwater. But Ogata, who's an experienced diver, says, I'm not letting you do that alone. I'm going with you. Mm. So the two of them go down and then we see Godzilla. He's just kind of chilling at first. He's just kind of hanging out. That's literally what I wrote them. in my notes. Godzilla yeah. underwater chilling. <laughs> yeah, that's what he's doing. And then, um, and then, the, so the two of them, when they're underwater, they put the oxygen destroyer down, and Ogata goes back to the surface, and Sarazawa stays there. And then we realize why he had originally insisted on being the only person down there is he wants to die with this thing, so he can't be forced to make this weapon, which is just awesome. This yeah. is such a great moment. He's kind um, of like so God- the, he's, he's the Boromir of Godzilla. A little bit. <laughs> a little bit. It, well, yeah, because Boromir is kind of, he has this moments where he's almost an antagonist as well. Yeah, and then and then you have your redemption at the end. And but Yeah, this is this is the ultimate self-sacrifice here as Godzilla's approaching him. He just stays. He cuts the line that they use to pull him back up to the surface. And when they pull yeah. it back up, it's cut because he had a knife. And so he dies with Godzilla in Tokyo Bay slash someone's bathtub because this <laughs> ships are miniatures and everything. But yeah, so that's how that's how things end. And Godzilla, you know, would never return. Not once. <laughs> Well, I also like the ending line from the, the professor Yamani. character. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't remember the first part of the line, but I wrote down the last part, which is if we keep conducting nuclear tests, it's possible that another Godzilla will appear. Yeah. 
Yeah, because um, the movie's the movie's main message about dangers of thermonuclear weapons and all of that it mostly comes from Yamani. I mean, Sarazawa is also key to this, of course. But Yamani is the one who diagnoses that Godzilla has something to do with this, of course, and he's the one who talks about like the testing usually because he's your. I guess you you have two science main characters, right? Yeah. Anyways. I think I think this movie's fantastic, but I would like to get some more of your thoughts before I go into mine. Well, I really like this movie. I mean, I, I agree with you. I think it's fantastic. And this is a movie, I want to call it perfect, even though it does have like a few minor flaws. But to me, this is kind of like a perfect movie where everything looks great. Even the majority of the miniatures looks great. And yep. you can kind of cut it some slack because it was made in 1954. And but, nobody, uh, at least in Japan, had done anything that elaborate with miniatures before in film. Yeah, yeah. so I mean, like, with the monster suit, amazing. It looks amazing. And the movement on it, like the mouth movements and then the actor in the suit, pretty great. When it comes out of the water, it's great. The suit is shot mm-hmm. well. Like Again, all the miniatures are great. Oh, the noise Godzilla makes in both oh, yeah. his footsteps That's and a his huge metallic roar. And then, uh, like, like some of the scenes, like, again, that jet fight I loved, and I even loved, it looked great, but it was even a little goofy, because in, like, a wide shot where you see rockets flying around Godzilla, you can actually see the the, <laughs> the little fireworks hitting the far end of, like, the soundstage wall and dropping into the water. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and, like, but even that, I loved it. I loved it all. Oh, and, and then the score, too. the That great Godzilla yeah. score that that was ramped up at action at big exciting action moments and then the score at the end of the movie when you were kind of ramping up to this major self-sacrifice mm-hmm. it, it was all just amazing i just loved it. it everything combined to create this extremely exciting and emotional movie as for the sort of the technical flaws or the problems with the special effects i mentioned last episode with it the terror from beyond the space i said something like if you see one string in a 50 sci-fi movie you're not doing too bad yeah. <laughs> i saw it i saw one string here maybe more but there's one when they show it's actually a really neat scene it's it's uh, from the inside of a building they show Godzilla's tail on the outside. You know, you see it through the window and it kind of swipes oh. along the building and then the roof collapses. Very clearly see the string on the tail there. There might have also been strings on the planes. I don't remember. Yeah, I saw I saw one or two strings because they were like close-ups of these rockets under the planes, under the jets. And okay. uh, you could, you could oh, just yeah, see Oh, yeah, yeah, that's where I saw them, yeah. Yeah. I'm not going to complain too much. It's the 50s. It's... I, it's not a low-budget movie. This is a huge budget for Japan, but it's a kind of filmmaking that no one had done in Japan yet. The big inspiration for this movie, other than current events, which we talked about a bit, biggest in- cinematic inspiration for this would, would be King Kong from 1933. Mm-hmm. And that movie, obviously, the effects are stop-motion. And apparently, early on, they wanted to make Godzilla in stop-motion, but no one, literally no one in the entire country was skilled enough to pull that off. And they said that it might take like something like eight or nine years to make. And then wow. someone at Toho was like, eight or nine years, we can release 12 Godzilla movies in that time. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, so, so they went ahead with the costume. And I think they, I mean, the costume becomes a lot schlockier in other movies. And that's where a lot of the enjoyment of those movies comes from. And just kind of how stupid they are. Mm-hmm. But as far as this movie, you know, aiming for a serious thing, they do it pretty well with the costume and with the miniatures. Yeah. The only time to me that the costume looked funny was in the first shot that we see Godzilla over the top of that hill in the daylight. Yeah. And that's that's not even really the costume. That's a matter of just seen compositing uh, the image 
an effects image with actual people. Like yeah. it's it's an issue of composition, not so much the effect or the costume. Because it because it looks almost like a little like see through or something. It looks like it's like a different grain than the rest of the uh, than the it rest. It looks of the hazy. Film. Hazy yeah, is exactly. how I would describe it. Yeah, Godzilla too. And again, it really shows the human aspect and the governmental Absolutely. aspect of of this crisis. Well, like they're mm-hmm. treating it like a natural disaster. Which is really neat. Even just in that scene when Yamani's trying to get by the military guy that's like trying to barricade these panicking people. I like even how that's done. But as far as the human aspect goes, I mean, Godzilla as a series is not known for its human characters, of course. It's known for its monsters. But you've got four central characters here. At least three of them are really, really good. Mm-hmm. Or two two of them, maybe. Ogata's all right. I just like Ogata because yeah. he's got freaking amazing hair. <laughs> I was gonna say the exact same thing. He's got yeah. he's got great hair. He's got a great mane. Oh, yeah. But Sarazawa's awesome. Yamani's good. Like I mentioned, one of the rare instances of somebody insisting that we study something rather than kill it, being motivated by something and actually making sense. And then Sarazawa, even though he's frustrating, his point of view is made incredibly clear, and he's the conscience of this movie, but at the same time, he's also kind of an antagonist because he could be helping, but he's not, even though it's clear why he isn't helping. Yeah. I I think Emiko could be a little bit better written. I think you you mentioned earlier she's just kind of the woman, and yeah, she is, but she has that nice little scene in that kind of the makeshift hospital. I like that. That's really the only scene that kind of gives her character anything, though. But, you know, it also, like, her her lack of a character does, I mean, well, first off, there's a lack of a character, but there also isn't really that much of a lack of a character, and it doesn't actually really detract from the movie at all, because... The movie is so fast-paced no, that what that what you're learning about characters is, is all you really need to know about that character to continue on. Yeah, that's right. I mean, this this is not a movie that gets bogged down in any kind of comic relief or even excessive exposition. The story keeps moving. We get the exposition delivered in a timely manner, and then the exposition transitions to governmental issues and stuff where, you know, because that big exposition scene then becomes a debate about do we release this info to the public or to the press and thus the public yeah i think it's it's a efficiently told story it's got pretty good human characters at least a few of them and i mean it's got you know these classic ethical dilemma with sarazawa great stuff yeah i agree so uh i guess that concludes our discussion on Godzilla, so let's follow it up with our discussion on a similarly serious in tone movie, and that's Picasso Trigger. <laughs> uh, so, big hearty apology from me first off, because this is apparently a sequel, and I, I have stated that if we land on a sequel with the random number generator, we'll just go back and do the first movie. But in my defense, these Andy Sidaris movies aren't exactly the most written about movies online, you know? Like, um... Yeah. Uh, uh, I don't think you need to have seen Hard Ticket to Hawaii to understand or comprehend That's probably true, although I actually movie. have seen Hard Ticket to Hawaii. Anyways, but, I mean, I should have known, especially Picasso Trigger's IMDb page, the plot summary says, after his brother got eliminated in Hard Ticket to Hawaii, parentheses, 1987. Yeah, I should have known. <laughs> this this is on me. So, so it's a shame, really, for two reasons that we didn't do Hard Ticket to Hawaii first. And first of all, this is, I think Wikipedia has this as the third in a triple, in the triple B series, yeah. whatever the hell that is. 
And so yeah, I don't know if Hard Ticket was, to Hawaii is the second one. Is was, it Malibu Express? Yeah, that's it, yeah. Okay, because there's a boat named Malibu Express, and I knew that's an Andy Sedaris movie. Anyways, but I will say it's a shame we didn't do either Malibu Express or Hard Ticket to Hawaii for a couple of reasons. One is the first 15 minutes or so of this movie were kind of like, what? What's, what's going on? What? But also, having <laughs> seen those other movie. two movies, <laughs> having seen those other two movies, those are better than this. <laughs> I'll just say that I've actually seen them. I don't remember either of them too well, but Hard Ticket to Hawaii is one of the greatest scenes in cinematic history, in my opinion. But anyways, Jim, why don't you take us away with Picasso Trigger? Well, thank you, Patrick. Yeah, Picasso Trigger, 1988. Andy Sidaris, infamous because of the director. I mean, I and well, and really, this movie's just shit. I'll be honest. Um, okay, well, well, hang on. Let's. I'm gonna defend Andy Sidaris here for a bit. Okay, go A couple ahead. things about Andy Sedaris. One, yeah. and this is IMDb trivia coming in clutch, he's not just a schlock filmmaker of action movies that employ Playboy Playmates. I mean, that is what he is. <laughs> but apparently he's he was like an innovator in television sports. No. Like he would, oh. he like directed the first episodes of like Monday Night Football and stuff. And I confess, I don't know what the hell a director does for something like that. <laughs> I don't know what the director of the Ellen Show does when I have a decent idea of what the director of you know CSI Miami does. <laughs> but like you know, apparently he was really important. He he uh, directed a lot of the broadcasts for the I think the '68 Olympics and then Monday Night Football, which started in the early '70s. Wow. So he was like accomplished in that field. Somewhere along the line, he transitioned to schlock action movies. And he's, you say notorious. I, I mean, it's sort of, but I think he's really well celebrated too by a very certain niche fan of the action genre. He is kind of yeah. a cult icon. Yeah, he, he's definitely created a cult following, for sure. Yeah, his his movies consist of guns, breasts, and explosions. and I mean, That's all you need, right? I think that's... <laughs> well, I, it, that, not only is that all you need, I think that's literally all of what his films are, <laughs> to my knowledge. Uh, yeah, well, it was funny, because I've never seen... you Both of us have never seen Picasso Trigger until this uh, podcast yep. uh, episode. And I have never seen Malibu Express or Hard Ticket to Hawaii, which if I have seen it, it's probably partly through like Red Letter Media or something like that. Yeah. You know, Hard Ticket to Hawaii is a masterpiece. Genuinely, yeah. it's just an incredible movie. Well, this one is not that. And, no, it's not. Uh, I was I disappointed because guess... that's what I was because that was yeah. how I knew Andy Sedaris and I was hoping for another gem. Yeah, well, you know, I think the best way I can describe this is that this is to the action genre what killer workout is to the slasher genre. Absolutely, a, yeah. A there's, a, there's a common ground between <laughs> these two for sure. Yeah, but like it, it, this movie is difficult to kind of explain because it's just a series of jump cuts leading to scenes that are loosely connected to each other through an, <laughs> through the equally loose story. Mostly, and... yeah. The first 15 minutes were off-putting really for two ways. One, it genuinely seems to believe that you know what happened in Hard Ticket to Hawaii, which <laughs> I saw like two or three years ago. I don't remember. Yeah. And then the other way it's kind of off-putting is that we're jumping from location to location. We're jumping <laughs> so from location stupid. to location at you know an incredible rate, and it's kind of hard to keep track of. There's so many characters characters it's disorienting uh first act before listen before we get into it okay or before i get into it i guess i'm gonna tell you the major locations are okay (laughs) paris vegas texas hawaii 
There's two Hawaii right? locations. Yes, first yes, of all. there's two Hawaii locations. There's Maui and then there's some other island yeah. across the bay from Maui. Yeah. There's a pantheon of characters. Uh, I don't even have all their names written down, but there's... There's too many of them. There are way too many of them. Yeah, and I, I also I have to add, so I'm sorry, Andy Sedaris movies are about guns, breasts, explosions, and warm locations, either tropical or subtropical. Yeah. The, the, it's those four. That's the Andy Sedaris formula right there. Well, I mean, I guess he nailed it, but it's just, it, just this movie wasn't as entertaining as I thought as he thinks it was maybe i don't know no yeah uh, well i mean when it comes down to it like there aren't that many action scenes here there is one what i'll what we'll get to and i'll, I'll kind of refer to it as the godfather sequence of events because okay, you, yeah you, you, <laughs> yeah andy sadaris francis ford Coppola, same thing but there's this uh <laughs> in the godfather right when during <laughs> the baptism when like seven or eight people are all killed and we see all of it and it's this fantastic scene it might be the best scene of that movie you know mo green gets shot through the eye when he's like on a massage table or something i think someone gets killed getting a haircut a bunch of people get shot in an elevator there's there's a scene where they're here in this movie where they're where they're trying to make like five different arrests at the same time yeah and then then yeah. they kind of get action scenes out of that and so so that to me that's the godfather sequence we'll refer to it as that later <laughs> That's well, probably as exciting or as fun or even as schlocky as the movie gets. If the rest of the movie was more like that scene, I think this would be pretty good movie. I mean, a pretty fun movie, not a good movie, but yeah, for sure. And I mean, and because of all this jumping around and like switching between characters, it, well, it honestly gave me a bit of a headache. So because of that, I think I'm going to explain to you, the listeners. Uh, I'm going to give you guys a brief synopsis i guess and then patrick and i are just going to talk about scenes i think because all right don't hold back because i i may need help figuring out what happened here okay 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 uh yeah i mean stop me stop me when you want some help and and i'll uh i'll uh i'll hop in uh, i guess i mean i guess i'll hop in or stop and then yeah, hop you're, in you're the you, one whatever. talking what are you talking about yeah i know I'm, I'm losing it this fucking movie has melted my brain a little bit and this movie has made me feel dumb honestly it really has I well it is a dumb movie so yeah <laughs> uh so the movie opens, we're in Paris, and there's, oh my god, uh, we open in Paris where there's this hitman-style guy, uh, codenamed Picasso Trigger, and he's given a tape, this VHS tape, and on this tape he puts it in the in the TV, and there's a guy on there, Miguel Ortiz. Yeah, Ortiz. Who's a baddie. Right. Who's uh, the brother of somebody that was killed in Malibu Express. No, he, hard His to voice? Or sorry, excuse me. His voice is super familiar, so I think it might be the same actor as I know, the guy I bet from Hard Ticket to I Hawaii. bet it is. So, uh, yeah, so on this VHS tape, uh, Ortiz explains that he's ready to launch a major assault on all, I think he said, like, FBI agents and members of the public that had a hand in the killing of his brother in Hard Ticket to Hawaii. He yeah, say and eventually it, Hawaii, it, but... eventually it covers people that testified against him, yeah. which I thought yeah. he was killed. What does it matter if someone testified against him? Well, exactly, yeah. So... Ortiz then thanks Salazar, a.k.a. Picasso Trigger, but he thanks Salazar for the use of, of some of his men in Texas to track down some people. And then almost directly after that, Salazar is gunned down in front of an art gallery in Paris, seemingly by this double-crossing Ortiz. So Yeah, this... and, yeah I want to I just point out the guy yeah. that shoots him is in a little sidecar on a motorcycle, <laughs> Dude, and it's adorable. Yeah. Dude, and also he pulls out like a four-foot-long rifle out of this sidecar. <laughs> oh, it's so great. But yeah, so then with this news that Picasso Trigger's been shot dead, the main character, Travis, and what's his last name? Like, Abeline or something like that? Abeline. A yeah. Maybe maybe it's Abeline. I don't know. 
Get it? <sighs> Maybe it's Maybelline. Um, yeah, that that's the joke. Yeah, yeah. Maybelline, <laughs> uh, <laughs> why can't you be true? Oh, Abeline. Oh, Maybelline. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so... Travis and a group of FBI agents who they, they never explicitly say that they're FBI agents, but I think they're supposed to be. Yeah, I don't um, think they, they say FBI or CIA, but I'm assuming FBI because it's all in the it, Honestly, this probably one of the things that's covered in previous movies. It, they might be like their own special fictional agency. You yeah. know, this agency that goes out of its way to hire Playboy Playmates as their <laughs> agents. Okay, <laughs> because I, wanna... I feel like that's not an FBI practice. Yeah, listen, after I give this synopsis, we got to talk about the nudity in this movie because all of it made me uncomfortable. There's but... actually less in it than I was expecting. Yeah, me too, to be honest. Because, <laughs> anyways, but we'll, we'll, we'll get to that. Uh, so yeah, so Travis and a group of FBI agents uh, are brought together to kill Ortiz and all of his cronies all over the states in Vegas, Texas, and two places in Hawaii. <laughs> but only after that. Uh, no, 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 it's just, yeah, no, it is two places in Hawaii. I was going to say it's one place, but they go to the other place, but no, because they kill people at the one place first. Yeah. Outside Travis... of Edie's restaurant. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> just... But the, Travis Edie, brings... by the way, low-key, the prettiest woman in the cast, I would oh, say. Oh, by far. Abs- well, the, her and uh, I really like the blonde woman, Taryn, uh, who was the one that was making Oh, that's Hope Marie Carlton, best known as the playmate girl that appears on a poster in a nightmare on elm street 4 and then shows up in a waterbed and then becomes freddy and drowns someone oh that's that's, nice. Ho- that's hope marie carlton's probably most accomplished film role good for her uh <laughs> she's got the funniest joke in the movie which i'll get to eventually anyway so travis pulls all these like fbi agents together which there's like a dozen of them pretty much but only after attempts have been made on all of their lives by ortiz and his men in the form well, of and some of them do get killed here exactly, like the two yeah. people on the beach in hawaii there's yeah. that clay matthews guy with that fat guy that looks yeah. like Paul from <laughs> yeah, cheers yeah yeah so that dude is guys... straight up clay matthews he's just clay matthews with the ponytail yeah exactly yeah dude <laughs> so they get killed by a bazooka out of a helicopter and they're in a car get this, that gets blown up which um, they at one point they pull off the road that's yeah, not what like, I would do if a helicopter's coming at me with a bazooka. I'd maybe turn like, around or exactly, like zigzag. Exactly, like pull or... over. I'll shoot them. Yeah, and then they get like, blown okay. up. Yeah, uh, <laughs> just give them a nice still target. Exactly. Yeah. So other than a bazooka, come on, Clay uh, Matthews. <laughs> yeah. Other than a bazooka, uh, normal bullets kill people. An explosive remote-controlled airplane kills people, and an explosion. Oh yeah, we get kills we get people. pretty silly with the methods of assassination, which is yeah. which is fun. Like it's as as disorienting as this opening is. There is some fun stuff. I totally agree. And then a boat chase happens uh, where neither the good guys or the bad guys can shoot except for this fbi double agent named pantera who's this lovely yeah this lady. comes this comes way later this is i i like this scene even though it's not as exciting as it probably should be but yeah so it's the professor who's like the m slash q i think and Dude, don't then get um, me started on how stupid that character is but and then abeline <laughs> Uh, or yeah. Travis or, you know, whatever we're calling him Maybelline. are yeah. on that boat and they're shooting at other people. First of all, they, they have the exact same boat, like yeah, same got... coloring and everything. That's, that's a missed opportunity, but yeah, exact and then... same boat and they can't shoot each other. And then, <laughs> and then Travis finally, or sorry, Maybelline finally turns to this like Texas guy and he goes, Hey, I'll take the wheel. You fire. This Texas guy turns around and shoots the guy driving the boat immediately. And he goes, that's how you do it. <laughs> I'm like, dude, this Travis, or Maybelline sucks. Yeah, Maybelline's no, like he's the worst it, agent. 
But, but also, uh, also, this is another, again, going back to if this is FBI or some special agency that hires Playboy Playmates, there's also, like, <laughs> two people that dated in college that both end up as FBI agents. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And, that's, and that's Travis uh, and Pantera. Yeah, it's Pantera. Like, they, they had some kind of previous relationship. <laughs> and this yeah. is only in there so that... Which, which one is Travis actually dating? Because I get the two uh, blondes Donna. mixed up. Donna. The Donna, older, played the by older Donna blonde. Spear. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Were there, yeah. Uh, that's easy enough to remember. Donna and Donna. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So they're they're actually the only reason the Pantera stuff is there is to make Donna jealous for like one scene. Yes. Yeah, so but then they just have sex off. like twice yeah. after that. So like <laughs> whatever. Yeah. Exactly. So up to this because point. they joined the Seven Mile High Club. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like that scene. Yeah, it's so stupid. So up to this point, we've had a bunch of Miguel Ortiz's goons fighting these FBI agents. And in a few cases, the goons have become victorious or have, have won out over these agents. But in most cases, the agents have either outsmarted or been lucky and dodged, like I said, an explosive remote-controlled plane. Like um, our two main women characters, they just happen to be out diving when the... Well, Actually, they have remote to be control plane and wearing white lace, <laughs> white lace. Uh, what would you call it? Like nighties to bed for whatever yes. reason. <laughs> then we get like gratuitous nudity, which I think is yeah. The one of them showers, the which I don't think you shower before diving. But what do I know? Yeah. <laughs> um. Uh. But but anyways, they just happen to be out diving when which, when the I remote mean, control plane the crashes Japanese, into their boat. Well, yeah. Speaking of the Japanese, this guy has this remote controlled plane painted up like a Japanese plane, and he even puts two. on the bandana. <laughs> which i think that's offensive Uh, maybe yeah that might be someone's offended by that (laughs) yeah so the first like and this is all by the way i was checking the clock the whole time this is all in like the first 30 minutes of the movie and then this is when some poor mexican laborer gets killed in a car bomb that we we think (laughs) is meant for the professor even though we learn later on it really wasn't yeah yeah just some guy he's got like one or two lines it's like here why don't you go I go know, get us some drinks and go sandwiches. like pick up milk or something yeah. <laughs> and then he just immediately gets in the car and boom <laughs> yeah and these and these bad guys are like yeah we got him and they like drove away so after all this stuff and again after this terrible boat chase chase uh where nobody can shoot each other this is when this whole team of people comes together there's like one black guy one white guy whose name is jade but he's super buff and knows martial arts uh, he has like this brunette with him. Then there's these two blondes. There's Donna and what was her name? The Hope Marie Carlton. What was yeah. it? Taryn. 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 Yeah. Uh, those two. And then there's uh, Pantera. Pantera. Thank you. And like I said, Travis. And I'm sure I'm missing somebody, but it doesn't matter that much. Oh, was was the other brunette? Was that Edie by any chance? No, no. I thought I wasn't it was, sure. but I was like, well, I know. I, I I thought it was, but that woman was swimming in the lagoon. Okay. At the marine park where Jade was working at. And anyway, this whole movie is like ridiculously convoluted. So they assemble this team and then immediately they all break up to go attack and kill members of Ortiz's gang or like his cronies. But like interspersed in in this second half of the movie, really, we get like a lot of jump cuts to scenes that have literally nothing to do with the movie. <laughs> it's all like a sad attempt at character building. Like the professor, you know, yeah. having sex with a Swedish woman who he refers to as Danish, like yeah. that stuff. Well, like which we the, don't actually see them have sex, but we no. all know what's coming. 
like that. And then there's also a bit where Taryn goes, I'm going to here. You guys take this plane. I'm going to like Jade and whatever your name is. You guys take this plane. I'm going to take this plane and go visit my boyfriend on the golf course. And then we have like a five minute scene of him. Oh, golfing. yeah. The golf stuff. And then on top of that. And then there's like a three minute scene with her in a hot tub with her boyfriend. I like mean, 10 minutes course. after that. I'm, I'm trying to think of this other like ridiculous stuff. I wrote it all down, but I kind of gave up. After well, there's and, and there's one thing. It's it's sort of in a weird way tied to the plot. But one thing we haven't taken note of is the dancing women in vegas yes yes they which, are agents yes and but they've got to... but they've got their you know thursday night gig at the sands hotel casino where well, they're performing been... they perform the same song like four different times in, <laughs> know, in the so movie stupid. And, and it's like i'm to... yeah i'm sure they're performing that same song every night do we have to hear the same song four times exactly that's exactly. the question i mean Answers no, Patrick. I was I was very I was <laughs> one of my one of my favorite of parts of the movie. One of my favorite parts of the movie was um, the first time we see them, and it, it's when Clay Matthews and Paul from Cheers are in the <laughs> audience watching. And then we kind of see a couple shots of the crowd when they cheer, like because in, in <laughs> this show, first this of all, <laughs> yeah. this this show it's not a nude show, but it's like but it's, it's close like Vegas cowgirl kind of thing, and you know there's like. They're suggestively dressed. There's there's no yeah. nudity, but but at the same time you see the crowd and it's like there's like some old women there and it's I'm like old men, old this? women, and a young woman, and then it cuts. <laughs> yeah, there's yeah. like like sure I understand old dudes there, and there is that old dude who keeps trying to like pick up. They talk about him kidnapping women, and yeah, I don't know what his so, deal is. Those women are there. So those women are agents, right? They're dancing to get the attention of yeah. Mr. I forget his name. It's like Sh- Sh- Shive, Shive something. Yeah. And they say he runs like a white slavery ring or something like yeah, that. Yeah. And what they mean by that is that sex he picks up chicks and he has sex with them or like he gets somebody to have sex with them in snuff films where when they have sex with them, they kill them. And that's how he makes his money. So their thing is that they want to be picked up by him so that they can kill him. So yeah. They're off yeah. They're undercover. Thing. So they're off doing their own thing after because the, they're part of the group that meets, and then they go and deal with that. And also a black guy who you only see like five times in the movie. Who's got yeah, the he's in that muscles. scene. I like. I figure there's a couple like he gets a couple like close-ups, but at that point you don't know who the hell he is. I didn't realize he was an agent until he shows up at that big exposition scene later, and it's like, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so this whole team assembles, and they all split up, and then things happen. I can't even describe it better than that. Things just happen. Lots of things that have nothing to do with the plot. But at one point, we just cut to different couples having sex. So, <laughs> so and these yeah, are some... it's it's um, Donna and Travis, Travis, Maybelline, yeah. And then it's it's Jade and brunette lady, uh, which this turned into which is Jade, Jade the martial arts dude, the yeah. buff dude, yeah. And it's oh, how do I always forget? Doesn't he rip what? someone's face off later on in the movie? Well, I mean, we'll get to that because that's a great in the Godfather too. sequence that yeah, yeah, that's one of the best moments. Yeah, what's her name? The blonde woman again? I always forget her name. There's two blondes and they yeah, look exactly Donna, the same. Not Donna, the other one, the T one. Taryn. Taryn, thank you. Which uh, I would just like to point out, Taryn is a brunette sounding name. Just uh, it's know, confusing. I agree with that. Yeah. Taryn, I keep expecting Pantera to be Taryn. Not, yeah. I mean the names kind of sound alike, but she that that to me is what a Taryn looks like. Taryn's a brunette name. Anyways, so it cuts to Taryn and her boyfriend having sex, and then we cut to Donna and 
Maybelline having sex, and then we cut to Jade and his girlfriend having sex, which it, it briefly turns into killer workout for a second because she's working out, and then he picks her up, and this is also the saddest scene of nudity in the movie because he like takes her top off, and you can see that she doesn't really want to show her breasts, and then she like walks away to the back of the room for whatever reason, and she leans against the back wall covering her breasts, and then you can see like she looks to whoever's behind the camera, which is Andy Sidaris, and then it cuts. <laughs> quickly and then it cuts to that old professor dude and his swedish wife having sex or a- about to have sex yeah. and was that his wife yeah yeah it's his wife okay yeah well she comes up because she's like hey honey i brought you a couple of i brought you a, yeah do you a want a danish yeah and he goes oh i'd love i'd love your danishes and she goes but i'm swedish she goes well, i'll take a couple of your swedishes and he's like oh they're both the same you know they, yeah. and then he's like and then he like looks at her breasts and is like i'll take two swedes or something yeah, like <laughs> yeah. but anyways i want to so oh, yeah. I, I don't want to be the guy defending andy sadaras here's here's the thing i don't know much about andy sadaras other than some of his imdb trivia which apparently accomplished television sports director and also <laughs> what i've seen in the beginning of his dvds because a few of his dvds start out with intros to his movies where it's like he's just like hanging out at the pool with like some stacked blondes it, it, it he he seems to have his own miniature low budget playboy mansion thing going on which <laughs> oh, like no. No. you gotta respect it sure. i mean well maybe you don't but like here's the thing you mentioned that one scene, and I didn't notice it. I didn't view that one scene the same way you did, but I want to believe he's not exploiting these women. I really <laughs> don't know if he is, but again, it's like the women he casts. Hope Marie Carlton, Playboy, Playmate, mm-hmm. some, you know, like 1984. Donna Spear, Playboy, Playmate, I think like 1985 or something. Like these women, in theory, were comfortable with nudity, at least comfortable yeah. enough to shoot it for magazines. Yeah. It's a different thing, you know, magazine versus film, sure. I certainly hope he treated these women right because because he is because he is absolutely using their bodies to sell this movie. And what? I don't know. I mean like it's it's I'm going to point out something. This is an exploitation movie. Exploitation movies, pay attention Eli Roth because you don't understand this. Exploitation <laughs> movies do not have to exploit the actors or actresses. Exploitation films are marketing. They're exploiting a certain thing, be it violence or sex, yeah. that you can use to sell a movie. Mm-hmm. I hope that nobody's actually being exploited in this movie, but I don't really know. I will say I urge you to go back and look at that scene that I'm talking about uh, between Jade and Brunette Lady. Because right. um, there is like, it's like a split second. I paused it and I was like, oh, she looks embarrassed. Poor, poor woman. I feel like the Swedish woman was into the scene though. But then she again, totally she's not was. actually nude. No, she yeah, she's, she's one of only two women in the movie who aren't nude at some Edie point. Edie being the other one. Oh, and Edie, you're right, you're right. There's so three. Yeah, so after all this like this quick montage of the beginning of sex scenes, um, this is when people start getting killed. And by people, I mean Ortiz's men. So This is the Godfather <laughs> sequence. Exactly. And Which, <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just thinking of this again in relation to the Godfather. You have in the Godfather, the classiest of classy movies. This is all going on during a baptism, you know, this yeah. religious sacrament. And this is going on during just fucking... <laughs> I know, I know. Well, also, actually, before I get into, I guess, actually, before we get into this this, this montage of, of, of killing, the, the dumbest scene, the scene that made me laugh out loud and almost made me throw my laptop out the window was when they go see this professor character and he gives them, like, gadgets. <laughs> but the 
they're not gadgets. He's just giving them things that he just put explosives on. So he gave oh, them, yeah, like, that's why I say he was both the M and Q. Yeah, yeah. Because he has a little Q scene. Yeah, so he, but he, like, he gives them this remote control car, and he goes, ah, oh, but when you add these explosives, it becomes something different. Ha, ha, ha. And then he gives Donna a boomerang to give to Terran, and then he, like, sticks, like, some C4 on the back of it. He's like, this is for Terran. And it's like, okay, great, more explosives. And he also gives Donna explosives to put on, like, her harpoon gun, I guess. And he's like, ah, oh, here, these are more gadgets. And then he gives, the only kind of gadget is the thing that he gives uh, Maybelline, which is a crutch and a cast. And in the cast, there's like ammo and the crutch converts into a rifle and or bazooka or like, sorry, rifle and or rocket launcher. But anyways, then we start having this kind of, I don't even want to call it an orgy of violence, but I guess that's what it is. And I think, I don't remember who it starts off with, but it starts off with Jade and Brunette Lady, I think. And yeah, I think so. Yeah, and there's this great scene where they're fighting these big buff bodyguards for one of the baddies that they're trying to get to, like one of like Ortiz's like right hand men. And Jade rips the eyeballs out of one of these guys. Yeah. And he's just like covered in blood. Yeah, that's great. And then he throws one of the baddies or he throws them that main baddie out of like a tenth story window or something like that. Mm-hmm. And he comes plummeting to earth in the form of a mannequin. And <laughs> I mean, you uh, can't go wrong with those kind of things. <laughs> no. But then the guy with his eyeballs that had been ripped out gets back up and he just starts <laughs> busting through the wall with his machine gun and like firing wildly. I just loved it. I loved it. And the brunette lady saves saves Jade. Uh, who kind of creeps me out because he's really buff and he has kind of strange hair and he's working at a marine park and I don't know. I don't like him. I wouldn't want to hang out with him. Oh, yeah, he's working at a knockoff SeaWorld thing. Yeah. Uh, then it cuts to the two lovely blonde ladies, Taryn and Donna, and they're chasing these dudes on the beach who are, like, patrolling the perimeter of Ortiz's estate in Hawaii. And they were these guys who tried to kill them before with this exploding plane, this exploding remote control plane. And Taryn shoots one of them, and they chase them. Uh, they chase the other one and <laughs> kill him with the exploding boomerang, which I really liked. <laughs> like, when it exploded, oh, yeah. you could see the dummy blow in half, which was great. Yeah, and then these, these these blondies go to Ortiz's house where there's two bodyguards at Ortiz's house. And one of my favorite shots, actually, is, like, there's these, like, nice, like, Japanese paper walls at Ortiz's house. And the bodyguards are hiding in this section of the house. And Taryn just, like, ramps this remote control explosive car through it. Mm-hmm. And uh, it explodes. And uh, she gets shot, but she's okay. And then... Yeah, because she had a bulletproof vest on. Exactly, yeah. Well, then, and then also, she was running, or she took a dirt bike to the house. Meanwhile, Donna swam there with her scuba gear. And then got out onto the beach as Ortiz escapes the house on a dirt bike. And while, while he's running away from Taryn. And then Donna shoots his dirt bike with an exploding harpoon. Right. And that kills him. And you're like, wow, the movie is over but then you're like oh wait what happened to travis and 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 pantera so it, it cuts to travis and pantera at this house and pantera's like oh what's wrong with your leg because he's wearing this fake this fake cast now and he's got this fake crutch and he's like oh I, I i broke it so he goes into the house and he finds dun 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 picasso trigger picasso trigger still alive because he realized yep. a little earlier on in the movie that uh the watch on the body that had been shot it was on a different hand yeah exactly so he goes up to Picasso Trigger, and this is where we learn that all of the stuff, like Picasso Trigger had essentially set all of this up. Salazar set this all up. It was his plan to fake his own death so that these FBI agents go after his crime syndicate. No, no, his like his his competition in crime. That was it. That's what I wrote down. His competition in crime. So yeah, so it's it's Salazar's plan to fake his own death and that these FBI agents would take out all of his competition. Which they did. Yeah. Maybelline. Oh, and then. Mission accomplished. And the best part about this scene is 
tra- uh, Maybelline goes to shoot him with his rifle crutch, but <laughs> a plate of bulletproof glass slowly lowers from the <laughs> from the ceiling and stops him, while a camera that Salazar had in the room fires a rocket <laughs> at Maybelline, and he like dodges out of the way. And then Pantera comes in to seemingly help Maybelline. And she's actually going to kill him. But then Donna comes in and stabs her right through the heart with a harpoon. And he's like, she was a bitch or something like that. I don't know. Or she was she was evil, don't you know? Or she was working for him. But then later she calls him a bitch. But then Donna and Maybelline chase Salazar slash Picasso Trigger out to the coast where he tries to make a getaway on a, on a hovercraft going three miles an hour. And this yeah. sea do that Maybelline gets is, is just running circles around him. Eventually, though, we get another nice explosion scene where Donna fires another, yet another explosive harpoon and blows up this thing, this this hovercraft, and kills Salazar. And we go, oh, that's nice. It's over. But then Donna goes, well, at least we got the real Salazar this time. And Maybelline goes, huh? He's like, hmm, maybe we didn't. And I didn't mention this, but when he ran into Salazar, uh, when Maybelline ran into Salazar, he was picking up a lot of radiation, and that was from his, like, pacemaker, from Salazar's pacemaker or something. Yeah, that's how they tracked, that's how the professor tracked him or something, Yes, yeah. So Maybelline goes, I've got an idea, and he loads a rocket into his rocket-slash-rifle cam, and he punches in this, like, exact radiation, like thing i don't know like this level of radiation and he fires the rocket into the air and salazar's like ha 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 and he's walking away and he's like huh and he like looks down and there's <laughs> there's <laughs> there's a laser pointer on his chest and this rocket descends from the heavens and explodes him and then the movie's over yeah, yeah. i mean what a what a conclusion to the trilogy <laughs> it's apparently such a fucking terrible movie it gave me such a headache watching it both times it just gave me the biggest headache possible uh, well, you know, I think you know my opinions on it, Patrick. If there's any scenes you want to talk about, we can we can go for it. But I'm also curious to know of exactly what you thought. All right, well, how about that scene where Godzilla flips the bridge? That was awesome. <laughs> that was a great scene, yeah. <laughs> and, yeah, okay, so now this movie. I mean, even in your incredibly cynical description of the movie, you did acknowledge you incredibly that cynical. No, I know, justifiably cynical. Yeah, but right. it, you you um, acknowledged a few kind of moments of entertainment, and I think, and I for me it comes down to the Godfather sequence. If yeah. the rest of the movie had that kind of energy, this would be pretty good. Or again, not a good movie, but more entertaining than it is. Mm-hmm. You know, the opening is a bit of a drag, even though it's some fun moments here and there. The movie gets heavy into exposition slash sex in the middle. Not sex position. It's, this isn't Game of Thrones. Hey, the exposition and the sex come separately. I actually think if they had combined the two, they you know the movie would be paced a bit better. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I I know exactly what you mean. And I totally yeah. Agree. So um, I don't know. I don't really have any scenes I want to go through that much because I don't want to talk about this movie that much. But it's it's. I'm gonna say this is the. It's probably not actually the worst movie we've seen for the podcast. I think it's technically better than Killer Workout. However, it is less entertaining than Killer Workout. This is the least fun movie we've had. Exactly. I think it's probably technically better, and I think the acting is a little better than Killer Workout. But uh... I I mean, I I don't know. As for the acting, okay, so you've got your two (laughs) Playboy Playmates. Yeah. They're, like, in theory, they're kind of the stars. They're not really. It's Abilene is more the main character. But the two of them, I'm sorry, Donna Spear, Hope Marie Carlton, 
they're terrible. They are so bad. No one else is nearly as bad as them. Most people are semi-competent, at least. Pantera's all right. You know, Pantera's pretty good. But those two are just so, like, even the scene, like, their, I mean, their first scene is they're waking up in their nightgowns, and then one of them showers, and, but, like, the oh, scene hey, where, look, where, it's where a plane. <laughs> yeah, that scene is so bad. It's so They're terrible. like, oh, it looks like one of those planes that we fly, just a smaller version, and I'm like, but isn't oh, it cute? God. Wait, why is it around our boat? Yeah, and, and I mean, like, come on, like, again, I don't know how many actors this movie has in common with Hard Ticket to Hawaii because it's been a while since I've seen that or even the first or even Malibu Express. I know they're a common thread and it's like they didn't get better from Hard <laughs> Ticket to Hawaii like because I get it they're not really actresses they're 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 models like I get that but like I, you gotta I, learn from some experience at some point right? Well exactly yeah and I mean like I agree with you they're probably like they're pretty shitty actresses however Hope Marie Carlton has the best fucking joke in the whole movie and, and what one was that? You mentioned that earlier, but dude, it's my. I it made me. I listen. I was having a beer the second, the first time watching this, and I spit my beer out all over my laptop. It made me laugh so hard, and it's it shouldn't have made me laugh that hard. But it's after their boat explodes and they get like a ride into town. They hop on that sugarcane train, which also great name, <laughs> and then they get off at the station. And there's like these cute surfer dudes. Donna's like, hey, Taryn, I think one of them's looking at you. And she's like, yeah, he's cute. Is that a snorkel in his pocket or is he happy to see me? <laughs> it cuts to the guy and he pulls a snorkel out of his pocket. And Donna goes, it's okay. actually a snorkel in his pocket. And she goes, yeah, I'm just right. having a really All bad right. day. I got gotcha. I got gotcha. <laughs> I laughed so hard. All I right. spit my beer out, literally. And, and another oh. thing I would like to point out, again, this movie, it's an action movie. I would, I would by no means say this movie takes itself seriously. Mm-hmm. Like, we can agree on that. But this movie isn't really the action is tongue-in-cheek but it could have really benefited from some more tongue-in-cheek humor like some more moments like that if this were more of an action comedy because really just the comedy that you have is there's some unintentional comedy here and there but it's really just it's the swede danish joke and it's just like a couple moments like that and it's like yeah and like and and maybelline tries to make like some sex jokes but they're not funny yeah there's a few yeah like that mile high club part and she's like yeah well, the seven, seven miles, miles up yeah. and he goes well and i guess we gotta do it seven times and i'm like yeah. fuck off um, yeah no they can yeah uh, i think this movie could have benefited from kind of a more tongue-in-cheek sense of humor again it is a tongue-in-cheek movie when it comes to the action because it's just things blowing up i mean bazooka shooting <laughs> from a helicopter like yeah. yeah i mean that's not going to be in a serious movie but no i don't you know, know what though, like there were some great action scenes like i thought the boat chase scene was like there was a fun scene yeah it's not as fun as it could have been but it was good that one was probably one that stood out for me the most but then then that whole godfather what'd you call it that whole godfather (laughs) the godfather sequence yeah 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 yeah. the godfather sequence i really liked that all the nudity in it made me a little uncomfortable not because i was like oh poor actresses but it was just like it was nudity like if i was a 16 year old i'd be like oh wow boobs wow but i'm like i'm you know i'm 26 and i'm like they don't need to be there in this scene. Put them away. Well, here's here's the thing. This movie, I don't want to say it's made for 16-year-olds. I think it largely is. I think it's made for, again, this is like a direct-to-video movie, right? So it's yeah. made for, I mean, it's selling you on the poster. It's poster, guy with a gun, women with cleavage, basically, is the poster. Yeah. I'm just assuming. <laughs> I haven't looked up the poster. but I, I did. The poster looks great, by the way. I've, I've looked up the poster. Oh, yeah, the, the posters to the other Andy Sidaris movies I've seen are great, so... Um, but anyways, like, I think this movie is for teenage boys and also fans of action movies that are just kind of unashamed, you know, like, 
<laughs> like like someone who just like I don't know, you know, you have a couple you have some modern movies like this. Like I never saw Drive Angry, but I understand that was just like a incredibly dumb but incredibly enjoyable action movie that's just like not trying to be serious. Mm-hmm. Like, I think maybe that's, this is kind of the direct-to-video late 80s version of that kind of tone. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's the 80s. It's, you know, Playboy was a big deal. Like, throw those women in there, and, and like, that is kind of an additional selling point. And I will say, I, I saw a tweet recently. I don't think it was, like, one of those, like, viral tweets. I think it was just tweeted by someone that I knew or something. But they said something like, boy, like, people growing up now will never really understand how big playboy was in the 80s and 90s like how big and important it was yeah i think that's true like just with the internet like no one cares but like i mentioned this to you i was like watching the movie naked souls from 1996 starring pamela anderson that movie has the appearance of a direct-to-video movie and at least according to wikipedia it made like 58 million dollars and it's like was that really just the power of pamela anderson probably (laughs) and thus by extension the power of playboy and it's like there was, like, in the 80s and 90s, like, that was a way bigger deal than, like, people our age can really understand. No, I, I totally agree. And, I mean, this is kind of like, again, I mean, it's not the late 90s, but this feels like the final throes of, like, a big, explosive, kind of goofy, semi-sexy action movie. You know what I mean? Like, this is like a movie that's trying to, I guess, be the more, be like one of those big budget movies, but it just fails in pretty much every way. You can tell what it's going for. It yeah. has the Playboy in there for the star power. But, uh-huh. like, but I, I won't say it fails in every way. I think this movie delivers on the explosions, if nothing else. Oh, ab- well, for, I mean, absolutely. For a cheap movie, for what I'm sure was a cheap movie, the explosions are pretty great. It, it does give you that. I love how um, when Clay Matthews and, and Paul get in their car, I, they have some <laughs> line about how the agency gave them like a, a shit car. A shitty car. <laughs> but like the second you see that car, you're like, bam, that's blowing up. You know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's, because yeah. It's, it's just like a car from the 70s or something like that. It's just <laughs> yeah. beaten up. I like, and I mean, like, like, so the, there's things like that that are like low budget staples, but the explosions themselves are like worthy of a bigger budget, you know, a bigger budgeted movie. As an action movie, I don't think it fails. I think it fails as a good action movie. You know, I mean, what? <laughs> what the no, hell does like, that mean? I mean, like, it's not a good movie. No, it's got lots absolutely. of explosions and like and gunfights and things where people are riding around on dirt bikes and stuff or chasing. Oh yeah, each other it gives you it gives you the bare minimum, maybe even a little bit more than the bare minimum of what you expect from an action movie. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The glue to stick all these pieces together, all these explosive gadgets, you know, the explosive harpoon gun, the explosive boomerang, the bazooka from the helicopter, like the glue to put all those things together is just not there, you know. Yeah. It's kind of a shame because, again, I was really looking forward because after you told me that this was an Andy Starrs movie, I was really looking forward to it because I know that reputation that he has. Yeah, this isn't his best effort, at least that I've seen. And apparently I've seen this entire trilogy and I think those are the only three (laughs) movies I've seen. I've accidentally watched this trilogy. I mean, I didn't. I didn't know there were sequels. I thought just all of his movies were were Playboy Playmates as FBI agents, and maybe other ones that aren't sequels are. You know. Well, maybe he didn't expect to write them as sequels, but then he was like, you know, I could make this into a trilogy. You know. Or but like this you... is very clearly a sequel. Yeah, I mean. Well, uh, I guess uh, we're done talking about that lovely movie, Picasso Trigger. So, uh, Patrick, I want to know which movie did you prefer to watch? Not which was Godzilla. the. Okay, I mean, well, I mean, don't yeah. even finish the sentence. I mean, it's Godzilla. <laughs> it's just a way better movie. 
it sounds like I might have enjoyed Picasso Trigger a bit more than you did, but like I obviously, I I also probably enjoyed Godzilla more than you did because I love that movie. I grew up with Godzilla, but at the same time, even mostly grew up on the 1956 Raymond Burr American one. So even still kind of watching it now, each time it kind of feels like I'm seeing a new movie because I was so familiar with that other version, which Mm -hmm. isn't as good, by the way. Yeah, it's just a fantastic movie. The tone is great. The effects for the time are incredible. And the characters are pretty strong, too. So, Jim, what about you? I have to agree with you on everything you said about Godzilla and that my choice is also Godzilla. I thought it was just a fantastic movie, and it's literally the definition of a timeless movie. It's something that you can go back and watch over and over again and really not mind the effects. I don't know, just the way well, one, it looks One thing we didn't mention about the effects is how much the black and white hides a lot of things, you know, a lot of mm-hmm. imperfections. I think there's only two Godzilla movies in black and white. The rest are in color. And in color, Godzilla, the miniatures do not look as good. They just don't. Mm-hmm. But no, yeah, I, I totally agree. Uh, fantastic movie. And I, uh, you definitely liked Picasso Trigger more than me, or probably a little bit more than me. I, uh, it just gave me a headache. <laughs> yeah, I didn't get a headache, but I'll be honest. I, a couple times I had to pause it and I just had to like... <laughs> you had to breathe. Regain my composure. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, I can, you know, I think I can safely say to anybody listening, watch Picasso Trigger if you want, but also feel free to skip over it. Godzilla's where it's at. Also, and I will say before watching Picasso Trigger, watch Hard Ticket to Hawaii. Not only is it a way better movie, but apparently it actually helps for the first 20 minutes or so to actually know what happened in that movie. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So Jim, how do you think this stacked up as a drive-in double feature? Oh, well, I don't know. It's a bit of a tough question for me anyways, because you have two great genres and you have like a great classic monster movie, which I would happily watch and I, and I, I think belongs in a drive-in. But then you also have this really schlocky 80s action movie that I didn't like that much, but also I could see belonging in a drive-in. Mm-hmm. As a double feature, I don't know. I'm not really feeling it. I think that they're right. just a little too different, I guess, as, as I say with a lot of things, I guess. But... Mm-hmm. Picasso Trigger is just too too much of Andy Sidaris to mesh with Godzilla, I think. <laughs> All right. Well, so I, I mean, I agree with you to a certain extent. Obviously, these movies are very different. And I will say that, like, I mean, when I think drive-in movies, I think 50s sci-fi. I think, like, mm-hmm. low-budget slashers of, like, the 70s and 80s. I don't obviously think direct-to-video action movies. But at the same time, I'm just thinking those movies came out in the 80s and the 90s, the late 80s and the 90s when drive-ins were dying those movies could have thrived in oh for sure in the drive-in and so so part of the reason why i'm including a lot of these movies on the list is is i want to give them that chance you know that they never actually got because this movie in actuality does it deserve to be anything more than just a vhs at a video store probably not but at the (laughs) same time i'm had this been in drive-in theaters probably would have found an audience that liked it i mean it kind of found an, an audience already because you know andy sadaris bit of a cult figure but yeah i mean i will say actually i think this is a decent double feature take in mind of course i didn't really enjoy picasso trigger but i think that kind of tone that kind of goofy over-the-top action pairs well with an ultra serious disaster monster movie 
you know, almost apocalyptic kind of thing. I think you want to lighten the tone after that. And I think this is the right type of movie to do that. It's not the best movie to do it, of course, because it's not a very good movie. So I'm saying it's a decent double feature. Caveat being a better Andy Sidaris movie would be would make this better if they were to be a double feature godzilla would certainly have to be first oh no question i mean i mean picasso trigger is classic second movie stuff if that's classic you know kids are asleep uh let's join the seven mile high club kind of stuff (laughs) (laughs) but would you say let's say it wasn't picasso trigger because i think i again i haven't seen either of these movies i haven't seen malibu express or hard ticket to hawaii but if they are much better than picasso trigger i may have agreed with you in this in right. this pairing because i agree with what you're saying i think the genres pair kind of well and and it is like a nice kind of palate cleanser i guess after godzilla something to <laughs> just a laugh, palate maybe. cleanser that leaves you feeling a lot dirtier too and it's well and, and and that's why <laughs> and that's why i'm passing on fucking picasso trigger <laughs> that's, right. I, gotta, I just gotta pass on it i mean that's fair overall i would not genuinely recommend this movie i mean in the past something like killer workout i recommend to a person that's into that kind of movie i think if you're a person that's into this kind of movie there are other better movies out there even by the same director so i i mm-hmm. mean it's one you can skip not just because it's third in a series but it's just you know it's not it's not great it's not andy sadaris's a game it's probably not his F game because he made a lot of movies. This is probably a, a it's C definitely, minus Andy Sidaris, maybe. I mean, it's definitely his double D game, though. <laughs> He's always on that double D game. <laughs> hey <Hell. laughs> I give this two. I give this movie two Swedes out of five. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> oh fuck off! I'm done with that. God. All right. Well, on that note, let's talk about what we're doing next time. So, please join Revenge of the Drive-In next time as we take a look at Child's Play, the original from 1988, as well as Spider-Baby from, I've seen a few years on it, but I think 1968 is kind of the mostly accepted one. Spider-Baby is, I believe, in public domain, so you can probably watch it on YouTube. It's definitely on Tubi. I think it's on Prime. It's been on Shudder in the past. I don't know if it is right now. So, plenty of ways to see Spider-Baby. I just checked today, the day we're recording this, Child's Play 2 and 3 are on HBO Max, but not the first one, so what the hell? (laughs) It probably means Child's Play 2 and 3 are being taken down soon is probably what that means, so maybe rush out and see Child's Play 2. (laughs) Skip the third one, it's not that good. But yeah, anyways, Child's Play, Spider-Baby, I'm looking forward to it, as always. Yeah, and this might be a pairing that I watched Child's Play relatively recently. Oh, yeah. I, I watched Child's Play 2 pretty recently, so... Oh, my God. And I've never seen Spider-Baby. Spider-Baby is, like, classic are. 60s low-budget exploitation horror. I think you're going to like it. But. I can already Anyways. tell you I don't like the name of it because it creeps me out. And I just think it's a weird name. It's a weird body. name. Anyways, thanks for joining us. I'm Patrick. And I'm Jim. All right. Take care, fellas. Thanks for listening. <laughs>